Good morning, family. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be back here with you this morning from the mountains of East Tennessee. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 13. That's where we will be for today. Thank you to Dustin, who will be filling in for me today. And when I return next week, we will unpack John chapter 14. Uh, but for the month of August, we're going to actually going to take a break from the Gospel of John and kind of do a different type of sermon series. So I would encourage you to be here uh, next week, but also for the month of August. And as I mentioned, today's speaker is Dustin Drake. If you do not know who he is, Dustin is an elder here at Calvary Bible Church. He has served as an elder for three years. He graduated from Tennessee Temple University and graduated with a master's degree in theology from Legacy Christian University. Dustin, he is a disciple maker, he is a mentor, and he is, as you may know, my father-in-law, and he probably will tell you some kind of crazy story uh, today about me, but sincerely, Dustin is one of the best men that I know, and it's an honor to hear from him today. Uh, And today, he has chosen to speak on Acts chapter 13, and we will go from verses 1 through 12, and I've personally received a glimpse of what he has to share today, and I think... We're all in store for a good message. If you see Acts chapter 13, I will begin in verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Maon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work which I have called them to do. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Lucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos... They found a magician, a Jewish false prophet who was named Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the magician, for for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him. You... Who are full of all deceit and fraud. You are the son of the devil. And you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist, a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he had saw this, what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. So let's just take a moment and ask God to guide us this morning as we share his word. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to share. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, you spoke to me through this passage in a mighty way. And I pray that this morning it would be an encouragement to those that are down. That it would challenge those, Father, that need to be challenged. It would convict us, Father, if we need convicting in our lives. That you would bring us closer to you through hearing your word. That we'd become more like Christ. That we'd think more like Christ. 
We pray these things in his name. Amen. I titled this message, The Church That God Desires, but I really wanted to title it The First True Church. But I figured that would create a theological debate here at Calvary if I had titled this The First True Church, because everybody would go, well, the first true church was on the day of Pentecost. So I didn't title it that. I said, this is a church that God desires. I've been teaching on Sunday nights through the book of Acts, and as I've talked through this book, God has just really been working me over a lot of ways, and I've got a lot out of the book. I think this is the second time I've talked through the book, but when you look in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we see the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is where Christ tells his apostles to wait because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he's going to empower them to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to all of Judea, then Samaria, and then the most remote parts of the earth. The rest of the book is a historical record of how God, the Holy Spirit, moved through human people, agency, to carry out this mission. The Holy Spirit worked in and through the apostles and the disciples to carry out the Great Commission. Or as Dan Spader calls it, the Everyday Commission. Because it's something we should be doing every day. We see that God established his institution called the church, or the called out assembly. It was first established on the day of Pentecost. Without pouring of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, and the subsequent conversion of thousands of people. After that, as we go through the book, we see the gospel begin to spread to Judea. And then in chapter 8, it goes even to Samaria. The half-breeds receive the gospel. And the church in Jerusalem is kind of shocked. So they send Peter and John down there to find out what's going on. Philip goes down there and shares the gospel. And I really think he did that because he was inspired by Stephen and how Stephen was so resolute on the day of his death, his martyrdom. And so I think that pushed Philip to go, I'm going down to Samaria. He goes down there, he preaches the gospel, and they believe. But Peter and John have to go down to see what's going on, and they actually lay hands on them, and then that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. Now you say, why was that? Because the church at Jerusalem, the Jewish people, needed to be convinced for sure that the Samaritans had been saved just like them. That's why they didn't get the Holy Spirit to, hold, to Peter and John go down there and lay hands on them. Then we see the gospel branch out even more. As Philip gets called away, and he goes down to a place called Gaza, and he meets up with an Ethiopian eunuch who's going back to North Africa. And the gospel gets spread even to North Africa. And then we see Paul in the book of Acts. He begins chasing Christians. He traces them all the way to Damascus and Syria. That's how far the gospel is moving out now, persecuting Christians. Chapters 2 through 10... We see the church is mildly, basically centered in Jerusalem. And we see it spreading out. And by chapter 10, we see the unthinkable happen. Peter is sent to the city of Caesarea, to a small group of Gentiles. Cornelius, the centurion, along with his relatives and the close friends that he invited, listened to the gospel of Christ. And they received Christ as their Savior. That's where the the gospel has been centered. It's been centered in Jerusalem. And it's branched out from Jerusalem all the way to the Gentiles. But now, in chapter 11, and that's where I want to go to this morning first, is chapter 11, verse 19. And we're going to read this passage. Something new is happening. 
something exciting. After the gospel comes to the Gentiles by Peter, listen to this in chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them with that purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught great many people, a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians. God is doing something new. This is the first church that we see made up primarily of Jews and Gentiles together. Antioch. God chose the city of Antioch. To do this thing, this new thing. Because you've got to remember up to there, up to this point, it's primarily just Jews are believers. But now we have a church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. 300 miles north of Jerusalem is the city of Antioch in Syria. But why Antioch? Why did God choose Antioch? Why this city to start this? Well, first of all, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Only Rome and Alexandria and Egypt were larger than the city. Probably had more than, they say between 100,000 and 500,000 people at this time. It was also made up both of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had settled there in 168 B.C. to escape the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews had built good relationship with the Gentiles. In fact, there were many Gentiles that believed. There were followers of Yahweh. It was a melting pot of many nations. If you go back to chapter 13, just look at chapter 13, verse 1 of the leaders, the leaders in the church. There was Barnabas. He was a Levite. There was Simeon, who was called Niger. He was a black man. There was Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. This Manaean, he was either a childhood friend of Herod, or he actually, a lot of versions you'll look, translate this as a foster child. He was in the very household. He was of the royal family. This whole city was like that. It was made up of different peoples and different nationalities. And it was interesting because in that city, it was set up like most Roman cities in a grid system. The people from the different nationalities tended to settle together. There were different sections of the city. Like in America, when people came from different countries, there was Chinatown, a little Italy. Just naturally, people from different cultures or ethnic groups are going to settle together. But here in the church, God was bringing them together. And we'll talk more about that later. They were also 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And I think this is key. Because the Jews there in Antioch had kind of become Hellenists somewhat. That means they weren't so strictly holding on to the old things of Judaism. 
And I think that made them more open to the gospel. And I think that made them more receptive of the mystery of the church that Paul was going to bring to them. This church, the church at Antioch in Syria, would become the launching pad for the spread of the gospel to the rest of the world. This church, this jumping off point, the gospel now spreads through the rest of the known world from this place. So what was it about these people in the church at Antioch that made it possible for God to work through them in such a mighty way? What was it about these people that God chose this church, this group, to work in this way? We need to see these things because if we want God to do a work in our midst, we need to have these same things in our church. The first thing I see, this first true church was the leadership. The leadership in this church. The leaders were spiritual shepherds. And I'm going to talk about that more in depth. When I was at Tennessee Temple University, Dr. Lee Robertson, the chancellor, the pastor of the church there, he used to say this almost every day. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Leadership. It's important. And it's important that we have the right kind of leadership in a church. What made these men the right kind of leadership? Well, first of all, they were spirit-filled and led men. When we go back and look at this passage, what did it say about Barnabas? He was a man full of the Holy, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. When Byron read that passage in chapter 13, when it talked about Paul, it said, Then Saul, this is chapter 13, verse 9, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently on this man and said, Oh, full of deceit. Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. What about the leaders at the church? What about the other leaders? Look in chapter 13. It says, As they ministered to the Lord, verse 2, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. The Holy Spirit, they heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on and they sent them out. Then look at verse 4. And then being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Who sent these men out? Who sent them out on this great missionary journey, this first missionary journey that lasted two years? Well, the Holy Spirit? Yes. The leaders at the church and the people of the church? Yes. Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If we're going to be the leaders that God needs us to be, we need to be people that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Why is that so important? Well, when you look in the Gospels, you see that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know Jesus was God, and Jesus did not cease being God when he was here on earth. But I think he did not operate out of his deity. I think he operated most of the time out of his humanity. We see on the day that he goes to the Apostle John, he's baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Now, did he not have the Holy Spirit before that? I think he did have the Holy Spirit before that. I think the Scriptures indicate that. But the Spirit came upon him on his day of his baptism to empower him. You say, how do you know that? Well, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He came back after his baptism being led around and full of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 14 says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the news about Him spread through the surrounding districts, and He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. I submit to you today that Jesus, everything He did on earth, He did as a man, the man of God, full of the Holy Spirit of God. Right after that, Jesus goes into the synagogue of Nazareth. He asks for the scroll of Isaiah. He turns now to what we call chapter 61. And he read this verse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The book of Acts is the book of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Holy Spirit through people is what it really is. Romans 8.8 says, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. We as believers, we have the ability, as P.J. was talking about, to get up and walk in the power of the Spirit of God or to get up and walk in our own flesh and do the same in the same day. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 8 says, For all that are being led by the Spirit of God, they are, these are the sons of God. Spiritual leaders in the church, if they're going to be true shepherds, true elders, true pastors, true leaders, they need to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's just you're doing it all in your own flesh. And you can do a lot in your flesh. I can tell you, I've done a lot in the flesh. But you will be worn out, tired, and frustrated. But when you're walking in the power of the Spirit of God, God is leading you and you're following. And God begins doing the work. And it's something special. So we need men that are spirit-filled. Not only were they spirit-filled men, they were spiritually-minded men. I love this verse. It says, now in the church there were certain apostles and prophets. And it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. That word ministered to the Lord is translated ministered, serving, and worshiping. Depending on what translation you, you look at. It's a unique word, and it really speaks of priestly service. They were involved in the work of the priest, of lifting the people up to God, of ministering before the Lord. And it takes me back to Acts chapter 6, when the elders of the church said, look, the apostles said, we've got to get deacons to take care of the daily necessities because we have to give ourselves over to fasting and prayer and and praying and teaching the word. Real spiritually minded men are seeking the Lord. These men were dedicated to seeking after God and knowing His will and His ways. And they were intentional in doing so. It was an intentional thing. We can see they were so intentional in it that the Holy Spirit was speaking to them. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they heard a voice out loud or not. I've never heard one out loud. But I know when the Spirit of God begins speaking to my heart. Because it aligns with the Word of God. And these men were spiritually minded. Their minds were set on the things of God, not the things of the world. Number three, they were supernaturally united in mission. They were committed to carrying out the Great Commission. So much so, that they were willing to send their two best leaders and teachers out from their congregation. That would be like you coming together to the church and saying, all right, Pastor Byron and whoever else, Pastor Harvey or whoever it is, we're anointing you guys, we're commissioning you guys to go out. You're going to go be gone for two years. You're going to the furthest regions. But we can make it without you because we know that getting the gospel out is more important than hearing your great teaching. 
This church, these men were committed to the work of God. They were committed to the Great Commission. They were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They had a singleness of mind and were united in their mission. Their mission was to make disciples of all nations. I know Byron has talked about it, but for the last year, a group of 12 people from this church, some leaders, some elders, some people at large, men and women, different age groups, have worked together to come up with a mission statement for our church. And it's to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. That's what we want our church to be about. To guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. The intentional relationships is how we do it. But what we're trying to do is get them to become biblical followers of Jesus Christ. And we're guiding them. We're not just telling them. There's a difference between a teacher and a guide. When you're out in the mountains and you've never been backpacking before, you can read all the books about it, but it's great to have someone guiding you that's been there before. They know how to do it. They know what to look out for. And they're walking in front of you. They're walking beside you. They're telling you how to do it as you go out into the wilderness. And they're leading you in that thing. And so our mission is to guide people. We want to be guides, to come alongside people and guide them in their walk with Christ, to become more and more like Christ. To deal with the things in their life that they've never dealt with. So we, we, we want to be that same church. We want to be united in mission. We want all of our ministries at this church to be accomplishing that goal. And if they don't accomplish that goal, perhaps we shouldn't be doing them. There's a lot more to that you'll hear about in the coming months. But these men were united in that purpose. They wanted to carry out the Great Commission. And then something else about these leaders. They were selflessly motivated. They knew it was not about themselves. It was, not a, it was about seeking the Lord and serving the body of Christ. You say, how do you know that? Well, there's a couple examples. First is the man Barnabas. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, you'll find that right after the conversion of Paul, and I'm not going to read this passage, but I'll tell you about it. Paul goes down to Jerusalem. And he said the Christians were scared to death of him. Because this is a guy who'd been killing all of them. He'd been locking him up in prison. And he said, but Barnabas went and got him and brings him down to the leaders of the church and says, no, no, I've seen Paul teach and preach. He's changed. He's a, he's a man of God now. And they receive him then. And he begins teaching and preaching the word of God there in Jerusalem until they send him away to Tarsus. Because they're, they're, they want to kill him. Eventually the, the Jews there do. The non-believing Jews. And so they send him around for Tarsus. He goes away to Tarsus. He goes into the Arabian desert somewhere. He receives the mystery and the teaching of Christ. And he becomes the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now he's up in Tarsus. How do I know Barnabas was not a self-willed man? Because the leaders of the church, Peter and John, said, Now Barnabas, we want you to go up to Antioch. It's 300 miles up there. We're commissioning you to go up there and find out what's going on. And Barnabas goes up there and sees the hand of God, and, and everybody receives Barnabas. He's a great leader. He's a great exhorter. But what does it say he did in chapter 11? It said as soon as he saw what was going on, he encouraged them to continue with the Lord. And it says he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, Barnabas could have went up there and said, you know, I've been commissioned by the church in Jerusalem, and I'm up here to lead the church, and I'm going to be the main guy, and I'm going to be the teacher here that tells you all how to follow the Lord. 
But Barnabas knew that he wasn't the gifted, gifted teacher. He knew he wasn't the one who'd been given the mysteries of the church. And he knew this is what those people needed. So he put his own ambition, his own desires aside, and he said, I'm going to get Paul. He made the 300-mile round trip to Tarsus to find Saul and bring him back. And it says at that time they continued for a year after that teaching the Word of God. Paul was teaching them the Word of God. They were meeting together all the time to hear the Word of God and learn. Barnabas was not about himself. And then Paul himself. If you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. In fact, I'm just going to read that. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read this passage. This is what Paul says. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes his own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart on you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become so dear to us. Wow, that's Paul. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel. What is he saying there, laboring night and day? He's saying, when we came among you, and we were like a nursing mother and a charging father, we made tents at night, so you didn't have to support us. Paul said he had every right to go and demand money. But Paul didn't want to be a burden, because Paul knew it wasn't about himself. Gifted teachers do not make it about themselves. True leaders and shepherds know that serving Christ is not about their giftedness, their desires, their vision, their reputation, or their needs. It's about being used of God to build the church. I'm going to tell you something I've learned. I've learned it the hard way. When you start thinking it's about you, God takes his hand off. It's not about you. It's about him. And it's about being used by him to influence others in the kingdom of God. And if you're willing to make yourself a willing vessel, God uses anybody. He used, it, he used these men from Cyprus and Cyrene and the church of Antioch to cross over the barrier and say, we're going to preach to the Gentiles. We'll talk about that some more in a minute. Third thing about true gifted leaders is they know that it's not about them. Well, they know that. True shepherds are committed to raising up disciples and new leaders. They know it's not about themselves, and they know that their true mission is to bring up new leaders. In John chapter 13 and verse 5, it says John Mark was with them. Where did John Mark come from? Well, when you look at the church at Antioch, they'd sent Barnabas and Paul to take money down to Jerusalem because Agabus the prophet said a famine was coming. And while they were down there, the cousin of Barnabas was John Mark. They grab him up, a young man, and they bring him back. In fact, if you look at chapter 12, you know, it talks about the last verse. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname is Mark. If you go to Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I'm not going to read this passage because I don't want to be here all day preaching. I'm trying to limit my time this morning. It talks about, I'm going to read it anyway. <laughs> this is such a good passage. Acts chapter 20, and this is verses 4 through 6. And it says, And so Peter of Berea accompanied him to the Asia. Also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, 
and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after her. The we, the we is Paul and uh, Luke. I counted this, and I can come up with at least eight men that were traveling together with Paul from these different cities where he'd started churches. What was Paul doing? He was building leaders. He was discipling men to carry on the ministry. Timothy, who was with him, gets to be finally be the, church, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He was building leadership because Paul knew everything rises and falls on leadership. And it wasn't about him. He knew when his life was coming to an end that he was restored to John Mark, was restored to him. He said, send John Mark because he's profitable to me for the ministry. That's a whole other message. The building leadership. It's not about us, man. So the first thing that made this church ideal was the quality of the men in leadership at that church. They were true spiritual shepherds. The second thing that made this church special was the members who were all servant ministers. All members there were servant ministers, including the leaders. They were servant leaders. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Verse 11 says that God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure, or excuse me, a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. When I was in California, we had a church, and on the back of the bulletin, Bethany Baptist Church, it said staff, and it listed all the staff members. And then it said ministers, and it had a dash, and it said all members. You're ministers. You're ministers of God, and you need to see yourself as ministers of God. These people were not pew-sitters. These people were not complainers and criticizers. They were men and women of faith and action. What made them special? Well, first of all, they were responsive to the Lord. If you go back to chapter 11, and I didn't read this part, but chapter 11, verse 27, and it says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Here's these believers in the church of Antioch. Agabus says, there's going to be a famine everywhere. All right, well, we need to get money together. That's the first thing they said. We need to get money together. We need to take up some money and get it down to the brethren in Jerusalem and Judea to help take care of them. They're going to need this money. They were responsive to the, to the leading of God. They trusted their leaders and responded in faith to meet the needs of others. True ministers are responsive to the leading of God. What do we find out about these people? They preached the gospel to the Gentiles. It says certain men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they went and started teaching the Greeks about Jesus, preaching the gospel. And it says the hand of God was upon them. It's crazy what they did. They made themselves not only responsive to the Lord, but available to be used of God. Available. They were courageous. They were 
willing to step out of their comfort zones. This is what Alexander McLaren said about this. This is a quote from Alexander McLaren. He says, a handful of large-hearted, brave men, anonymous fugitives belonging to the little church in Jerusalem, had come to Antioch. And there, without premeditation, without authority, almost without consciousness, certainly without knowing what great thing they were doing, they took it all at once, as if it were the most natural thing in the world, the great step by preaching the gospel to the Greeks. And so began the process by which a small Jewish sect transformed into the worldwide church. They were emboldened. Maybe they'd heard the news that Peter had preached to the Gentiles and some had gotten saved. And they said, well, if Peter did it, we can do it too. They were people that were responsive. They were people that were available. You've got to be willing to step outside of your comfort zone. You've got to be willing to be pushed to try new things, unfamiliar things, even scary things, to be used of God to the fullest. I remember when I was asked to help lead a group to Ukraine from here in Calvary back in 2005. I was first approached and they said, would you pray about leading this group of teenagers? We're going over there. We're going to do a ministry to an English camp out in the wilderness. And I was like, I'll pray about it. So I prayed about it. He said, well, would you be willing to send out letters asking for support? We need $3,000 or $2,000, $2,000. I said, sure, I'll send out some letters. And I'm thinking the whole time, I'm not going to get $2,000. A week later, I had more than $2,000. And I remember I was driving to Mississippi to a business meeting, and he called me on the phone and said, man, you've got more than 2000 already. In fact, I can help some others with the money you've got. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I've got to go now. I've got to go. I didn't think I was going to have to go. Now I'm going to have to get on a plane. I don't like getting on planes. A big old plane, and I'm going to have to fly for 13 hours to Amsterdam. And then I'm going to have to get off on another plane and fly to Ukraine. And then I'm going to have to get off with the people that don't speak. And, and we did that. And then we got on these little buses, and we drove way out to a city called Rivna. And then we got on some buses, and we went further. We took these vans and went to a little town called Stabonif which was about 25,000. And then we got back in those vans, and we drove out in the middle of absolute nowhere on a dirt, on a, a tar gravel road, and then we turned off a tar gravel road onto a sand road. And then we started going out in the woods. And we got so far back out in the country that they were driving around in horses and wagons, except the wagons had tires on them instead of wagon wheels. And there we drove up to this camp, and there were no bathroom facilities. In fact, we dug a big pit in the ground and made an outhouse. And then we dug another big pit in the ground and we put all the food down there. And we cooked all of our food for a week on an old Russian army cooker that had big pots on the top of it and heated with wood. And I remember when we first got off the road, the missionary was pulling a van or pulling a, a trailer behind his van and he got stuck in the woods because he couldn't go through the road because the, the, the potholes were so deep. They were like three foot deep with water. And I had to get out of the van and we had to get the trailer and pull it out of the out of the the stuck mud, and so I've got dark black mud up to halfway up my calves. I've got axle grease over both hands, and we drive up to the camp, and I'm sitting there in the van thinking, Lord, what have I got myself into? How am I going to get this grease off of me? How am I going to get this mud off of me? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? 
These Europeans, they don't use deodorant. And all these kids, I'd already experienced a few of them, didn't smell really great. I thought, this is going to be terrible. In fact, in that whole van, it was dead silence. Turned out to be the, probably some of the greatest ten days of my life. You've got to be willing to be pushed out of your comfort zone to be used to the Lord. Not only that, they were faithful. They were faithful to the Lord. They said they gathered together for a whole year. They commissioned and sent out their two leaders. In fact, it's interesting, it says that here they were first called Christians. It's interesting to note, they didn't call themselves Christians. At that time, they called themselves brethren. They called themselves the saints. They called themselves people of the way. The Jews that didn't like them called them a bunch of Nazarenes. But the people of Antioch, which liked to give nicknames, called them Christiani. That's those Christiani. Because they're always talking about Christos. They're, always, they're not Jews. They're not the pagans. They're Christiani. Some people said it meant little Christ. But the better interpretation, I think, is that they were of the party of Christ. They were of the people of Christ. The people around them called them Christians. Because they were like Christ. They were consumed with Christ. They were faithful to Christ. Faithfulness, you can't, under, you can't do away with it. And then the last thing that made these people, well, second to the last thing, was they were teachable. These people were willing to be taught the Word of God. They received new teaching they'd never heard before. Paul said he was revealed to him the mystery of the church. That Christ is in us. That we're all equal before the Lord now. There's no Jew and Gentile. There's no bond and free. We're all equal before the Lord. And it's a new thing. And we don't have to go through a priest. Because we have a great high priest. And he said we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. Christ is in you the hope of glory. They were teachable. They received that teaching. And then they were servants. Servants willing to use their spiritual gifts. In Romans chapter 12, there are seven, or 12, yeah, seven service gifts revealed. Perception, teaching, service, exhortation, giving, and administration, and compassion. They were willing to use those gifts. Perception, people that can see right and wrong, people that can see things in the body. That's the eye of the body. They were teachers that knew the truth of the Word of God and could able to explain it clearly. That's the mind of the body. They were exhorters like Barnabas. That's the mouth of the body. Those are the people that come alongside and encourage people to walk with God. Teachers and exhorters work together really well in perceivers. They work together in the body of Christ to lead it. And in servers, the hands and feet of the body. Administrators, the shoulders of the body. People of compassion, the heart of the body. And then people who are givers, they're the resources of the body. And in every congregation, there's a percentage of each one of these gifts that you'll find in that body. And it's the same in every body. And as you use those gifts, you can be used of God to build up the body of Christ till we all become like Christ. You need to be operating out of your giftedness. That's why Barnabas knew he was at order. He knew the best teacher was Paul. I'm going to get Paul because he's the great teacher. He's the master. I'm teaching too, but he's the great teacher. So what do we learn today from this message? If we want to be the church that God desires, first of all, we need spirit-filled people who are seeking the Lord's presence and purpose for their lives. Spirit-filled. If you're not walking in the spirit, you're walking in the flesh. And if you're walking in the flesh, you cannot please God. Secondly, we need spiritually minded people who are committed to the Great Commission. We need to be committed as a church to the Great Commission, which is making disciples of all people. 
in our own personal lives and as a church. We need to have responsive leaders and members. Leaders are responsive to the Lord, and the members are responsive to the Lord and the leaders. This doesn't mean that members can't come and question leaders. You always have the ability to come and question any leader in this church. And leaders, we need to give straight, honest answers. Because we're not above the people. We're servants of the people. If you're a leader in this church, you're an elder in this church, you're a servant of the people. You're a servant of the Lord and a servant of the people. We receive our power from the people and from the congregation who appointed us. Our authority. What little authority we have. And then we need to be selfless servants. People who put the Lord and others above their own needs, desires, and preferences. They had a strong sense of community and belonging. We need to have that. Folks, it's not about us. It's not about me and what I like and what I want. We need to be willing to be pushed out of our comfort zones and let God do a wonderful work in our lives. To try new things. We may think we don't like it. I I don't really like that. Try it. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to try this. I'm trying this. I'm going to step out and do this. It's a new thing. I've not done it before, but I'm going to do it for you. Because people are saying this is something we should, I should try. And when you do that, the world will know you're different. They'll know you're different like the people at Antioch. They spread the gospel everywhere. God used them because they were willing to be used of the Lord. And that's what we need to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these people that have come to hear your word. And I pray this morning through my feeble attempts to share your word, that I encouraged them, I challenged them, I lifted them up to step out of their comfort zones, to be people led by the Spirit, people seeking your things, God, people committed to the Great Commission, people committed to each other. Father, I pray that we would be a church like Antioch, that we would not only reach Huntsville, but we would reach the world. Bless us, Father, as we continue in our service this morning, as we continue to see some people follow Christ in baptism. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.